you by chance keep a journal? Yes, I've kept a journal actually since I was nine. Really? Yeah, my mom keeps journals, so I kind of wanting to be like her was like, oh, I'm supposed to write my thoughts down. <laughs> and I've been doing it ever since. I've been journaling since I was a kid. I just think expressing your thoughts in a way that you feel comfortable or you kind of just get in everything that you need to fill out and sorting through your own feelings. Um, does my notes count in my phone? Yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah. Has there been a moment recently that you felt like in the moment you had to document it? Yeah, for sure. So I'm going through like a little heartbreak at the moment and in the last couple of days I've had many moments where I feel like I need to write this down because it's just sometimes the thoughts in your head can be overwhelming but when you write it down at least for me, I get clarity. Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright, and I recently had the pleasure of meeting one of the writers who, quite honestly, shaped my understanding of the world as I was growing up and trying to figure out what it meant to be a young Black man in the 1980s. Hello. Hi. Can we hear each other? I can hear you now. Oh, Wonderful. So um, I'm Kai. I'm the host of our show. Hi. Alice Walker published The Color Purple in 1982. It's got to be one of the most well-known novels in print today. But by the time it came out, her writing in the 1970s had already helped create a whole school of thought among and about Black women. She has now released a collection of her journals, and that's what I called her up to talk about. The collection spans four decades, from the 1960s through the turn of the century, and in its pages, Alice Walker invites us to share her private musings, deeply personal, intimate reflections on her life, her art, and the world in which she created that art. The book is called Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, The Journals of Alice Walker. Valerie Boyd, who was the editor of the collection, called it a primer for people of all ages who wish to lead free lives, which I love. I, I just love the way that is phrased. And I know you and Valerie were close. She passed earlier this year. What was your conversation that led to this collection? Valerie and I were very close. Um, and losing her you know, was an incredible blow, although she had been fighting this this beast of a disease, uh, pancreatic cancer, for almost a decade. Oh. Uh, and we had we had waited. We had done, you know, bits and pieces of our work. And then we would wait a little while while she had treatment. And then we would plunge in again. And, and we were just so, um, you know, we were just very close in that way. She was um, incredibly courageous, uh, very low-key about this, you know, scary illness. Never complained to me about anything as we were working. She just did her part, did it well, was staunch. We had this image of ourselves dancing down the yellow brick road. Um, and I, at the time, had shaved my head, and she had her you know, lost dreadlocks kind of replaced on her head. And so we were, you know, we were just going to go on <laughs> in the tradition of Harriet, you know, Harriet Tubman. Yes. You know, you just keep going and people do whatever they're going to do, but you never stop. 
And so I feel her with us, you know, even in this moment that she would have been so happy to be right here with us chatting about this and encouraging us, you know, to believe that we can, we can overcome, you know, our song in the 60s was We Shall Overcome. And today is applicable to the planet. And if we don't overcome, we're losing the planet. And we can all see that now. Yeah. I have always marveled at people who keep journals at all, let alone for decades at a time. Mm. What kept you journaling? Why write your thoughts down and and why keep them all? Well, because I'm writing novels, you know, of intense everything. And if I don't write what's happening, I won't have it. I mean, that's a very simple answer. Mm. The the novel that I wrote after The Color Purple is called... um, Oh, God, what is it called? Anyhow, it's it's fine. I have to tell you that my heart is so open to the idea that Alice Walker can't remember the names of all of the wonderful books that she's written. For the record, the novel is called You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down. And all told, Alice Walker has published 34 books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. There's too many. There's so many. But anyway, what I'm trying to say to you, though, is that... um, I don't know if people who don't create in this way have any inkling of what it takes. Mm -hmm. You can go so far away from everything you know and everybody around you knows that, you know, you need a little trail of breadcrumbs to get you back home. Uh, And so writing a journal in a way is like that. I love how it's arranged in decades um, because I ended up just kind of picking through your life in this way, which feels like a much more honest way to reflect on a life than like a tidy memoir. And I wonder, as you picked back through these yourself, did you end up arguing with your old self or finding, you know, learning from your old self or something of both? Oh, yeah, I did. I mean, that's how you grow. Um, we we are totally unfinished and, and we're, you know, raggedy and we're you know, we're struggling. You're trying to evolve into, you know, what is the best that you can can do and be. And so you need to have some, you know, little, little trail that will help you. So you, you know, five months after you thought about killing yourself, you can go back and see where that started. Well, was it ice cream? You know, did you have too much sugar, really? Uh, were you angry because, you know, the bus driver told you to go in the back of the bus and you thought that law had already changed? I mean, what was it? What changed you? What made you? So you go back there and then you come forward again and you see that poco a poco, step by step, you have basically dragged yourself up the hill one more time and you're somewhere else and that that's life. And that is what I'd like to share, especially with younger people, because we are being hit by, you know, so many suicides of various kinds now because people are just scared. Uh, And a lot of them have been in wars they never should have been drafted into, and they've done terrible things and seen things, and so they just went out. But, you know, I, I maintain that if you journal, it's entirely possible that you will see where you've been, how you got there, who did it. <laughs> you know, you can vote them out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and all, all of those things. And so journaling is really the thread of Ariadne. You, you go into the Minotaur's den with your little thread there to, to try to help you come out again. And you slay the Minotaur, hopefully. And then you can find your way out of the, you know, out of the cavern or, or this, this cave that, that the Minotaur lives in, which is the cave of delusion. 
in the cave of wanting to rule the world and rule other people and rule you. And so you learn these things by journaling. I was really drawn to the journal entries in your youth, in your 20s, in the 1960s, and just like the yearning to write and to write big things leaps off of the page as you read it. I mean, you just can feel how much you yearned to to have the life that you ultimately had. Um, Looking back at yourself as a young writer at those moments, what stood out to you? Well, how determined I was to be my real self. Uh, I was at a school uh, in Atlanta, kind of a, you know, upper middle class black women's college. Spelman College. I I love it dearly. But, you know, I was poor. I was, you know, really poor. But I I had a mind. Uh, And I really wanted to develop that mind to see the world as it is rather than, you know, the bogus world that people try to make you believe in. So all along, I was, you know, in those entries, I was trying to see that world. That's why when I went to Helsinki, I went to Helsinki. uh, She went uh, after her first year in college, at least in part, as a way to get away from Spelman. She attended a youth peace conference there, and she traveled throughout Europe. Like many youth of her generation, she felt in her bones that she was being lied to about the world. And that through travel, through simply meeting different kinds of people, she could lift a curtain and reveal some kind of deeper truth. And so I was very much into that, even as a student. You know, I wanted to find out what was behind that curtain. And actually, when I got to the Iron Curtain on my way to the Soviet Union, I got out of the train. I mean, we had to get out of the train because it was going to another country. But I was looking for that Iron Curtain. Where is it? I want to see it. And of course, there was no Iron Curtain. And it was a big teaching for me. Well, you wrote that you would never be the same because it wouldn't allow you to see people as ideas instead of as people. Of course, you must never see people as ideas. You have to see them as people because otherwise you'll go over and kill a lot of people that you don't know because somebody's made you mad at the leader. And the leader is probably crazy. Right. You asked yourself at one point in one of the journal entries uh, in this period whether it was possible to create out of happiness. Um, and it, it just made my mind jump to, I don't know if you mean the same thing, but but it made my mind jump to something I read Toni Morrison say once, that she always tried to find uh, moments of cooperation between her characters in order to propel the narrative as opposed to to conflict. But I just, uh-huh. I wonder, what what were you asking there and did you ever answer it for yourself, whether it was a possible to create out of happiness? Yeah, well, I love what Toni said. I mean, she's wonderful and brilliant, of course. But yes, of course, you you can create out of happiness. I mean, look at Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. I mean, here's someone- Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, and his life's work defies an easy description, much like Alice Walker's, actually. His writings and his teachings deeply shaped the global peace movement. He taught that mindful living means not only contemplation, but also engagement in making the world a more just and peaceful place. You know, I watched his services after he died, and I was so moved by how many things he created while he was basically, you know, banned from Vietnam or in danger of being bombed or whatever. Uh, And all along, he was just going around creating monasteries. (laughs) (laughs) And he was happy. I mean, if there was ever anybody under incredible duress, his people, you know, his country, you know, everything— 
and who maintain his own happiness, that's Thich Nhat Hanh. And, and I think I feel that. That's how I feel. I feel very happy a lot of the time. But as a young writer, it seemed in your journals, you were bedeviled by this question of like whether or not you could be happy. I, I, I wasn't sure whether you were saying, could I be happy and write or whether happiness would create good art? Well, well, who had happiness? I mean, and when you're really young and you're you're full of uh, stress about everything you can think of, including, you know, your body's processes, it's not so clear, you know, it's not so clear what happiness is. And you, you look at people who say they're happy, and to you, their happiness is just not the kind you are interested mm-hmm. in. I mean, the bourgeois happiness, for instance, I've never, ever been interested in it. And it was all around me uh, when I finally left kind of the impoverished place where I was born, where happiness, you know, was at Christmas. You you had a few days to rest. And so, you know, you could see some happiness. But, you know, who knew what you could manage if you actually were happy, if you found that place that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, where you basically are, you know, in, in the wonder of this incredible universe that you somehow managed to get into. I mean, it's, it's just an extraordinary experience to get that, no matter what happens, to know that you, you, you lucked out. Another striking thing about this time in your life, uh, reading the journals, is how difficult a relationship you had with the South. In one yeah. of the entries, you, you say you felt nauseated the first time you went back South after moving to New York for college. And it's just striking to me because many of us think about you as one of the most astute and loving um, chroniclers of Southern Black life. So just tell me about uh, that time, your relationship with the region at that time. Yeah, well, you know, when, when they're bombing your people, they're shooting them, they're, you know, you know, raping little girls and sticking sticks up them and, and you know, throwing them in the river. And you don't, you only find them because you're looking for some other people they killed. Uh, the nausea is really natural. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't love where you grew up. I mean, you, you love... You know, the natural world, the natural world didn't do it. You know, the, the people who, who who do things like that, that's who did it. So I love, love, love the South as the natural world that I grew up in. I knew intimately uh, and, you know, generations of my family, you know, knew that same area where I was born, the indigenous, the African and the um, European. I mean, the mixture is there, you know. The European part, of course, came late, as usual. But anyway, uh, that love has nothing to do with what was overlaid, the violence that was overlaid, that we had to confront as a movement, you know, as a political movement, as a social movement, the civil rights movement. I never liked the name civil rights because we're not talking really about civil rights. We're talking about human rights. You were so deeply drawn to the movement at the time. It just really jumps out. And it, again, in these early, early years in your in the collection, um, that you were finding romance in it, both figuratively and literally. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like people don't talk about that part of movement politics as much today. I mean, do you agree with that? That there's there's so much of what you, people are drawn to um, is is romance. There, it, it, yeah, no, and it's like they're going back to their separate corners, which I think is terrible. Um, yes, we were all falling in love with everybody. I mean, we were. <laughs> on fire. We were passionate. We were, you know, every, <laughs> and it was wonderful. I mean, why not? I mean, they may bomb you the next day, but you know, the night before that really just express everything you want to express in the most positive way you can. 
I mean, this romance included your first husband, and he was a white Jewish lawyer, and you proposed to him for political reasons. Tell, well, tell us that story. Why, why, why did you propose to him? Well, you know, the South uh, has always been very full of what they call miscegenation, which is race mixing. And they were trying to always uphold their law against it. Don't race mix. Well, you look at anybody hardly in the South, you see a lot of already mixed race. So the way of them dealing with their attraction, the white attraction to black black people, black bodies, black women especially, uh, was to, you know, make a law uh, that, that was supposed to keep them separate. Well, it didn't work. But anyway, when, when they were confronted with people who really were in love or loved each other and, and were brazen about it, they really didn't know what to do. So they would naturally assume that really it couldn't be true that you actually love this person or you love the, each other. And so uh, when we were going down to Mississippi, one of the rules that I imposed on our relationship <laughs> was <laughs> that we had to be married to, to basically uh, show these people that, A, they cannot stop you from marrying whoever you want to marry, and B, I was not going to be what they were used to, which was the black concubine. Well, I mean, this part of your story does also make me wonder how you're processing today's political moment around the what we call the culture wars. I think it's fair to say that much of the political project around that is um, about reversing the culture change that you set in motion. Not, obviously not you singularly, but you were certainly a leading voice in a culture shift that was happening. So I just wonder what you think about when you hear today's political discourse on this stuff. Well, I don't really listen to much of it. And also, I think people are barking up the wrong tree to borrow a metaphor from Georgia. I think they should be more concerned about artificial intelligence uh, making the human brain obsolete and therefore all of us ending up just, you know, a computer. So I feel like, you know, people have to awaken and stop even bothering with this stuff when, when really our whole world is in jeopardy and humanity itself is very endangered. I'm talking with Alice Walker about her new collection, Gathering Blossoms Under Fire. It's a compilation of her personal journals spanning four decades of life, from the 1960s through to the turn of the century. After a break, we'll look at her journal entries on her closest personal relationships, including with her daughter. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. So a couple weeks ago, I told you to stay tuned because we are going to highlight some exciting new journalism from our colleagues at WNYC. I know it actually hasn't dropped down the feed yet, but it is coming soon. So thanks for your patience and sorry to keep you waiting a little longer. But in the meantime, as always, if anything from this episode resonates for you, let us know. Has Alice Walker or The Color Purple impacted you? Do you keep a journal? What difference has it made in your life? Send us a voice memo. You can email us. The address is anxiety at wnyc.org. That's anxiety at wnyc.org. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Promise.
Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright. This is the United States of Anxiety, and I'm joined for the whole show this week by novelist, poet, and essayist Alice Walker. We're picking through her new collection, Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the journals of Alice Walker. Reading your journals, I felt reminded that our relationships with people we choose to love are so pivotal. They're so often the most pivotal moments in our lives. And I know a lot of people will want to hear about your relationship with your daughter, Rebecca. The complexity of your relationship has been quite public, given her memoir. And we learn in this collection that you feel the two of you are closer than ever today. Um, it seems like she challenges you in all the right ways. Is that is that right? Uh, we challenge each other, actually. I mean, I am a challenge as a mother because I'm so often distracted, and I own that. I can't produce what I do. I couldn't make a living for us. I couldn't find housing for us. I couldn't, you know, get a job for us if I, you know, were not single-mindedly pursuing a way for us to live. And I think that she now has a, a son uh, and she's facing some of the things that I faced, and she's understanding what it takes to be a mother, to be a single mother. It's not, it's not easy. Mm. I mean, I sent her to Yale alone. I mean, I, I did that. And, and I'm saying it not, not, you know, in a prideful way, but just saying that if you think for two seconds what that takes to actually do that as a person of color, as a woman, as a writer. I used to sell my books on the street, I want you to know. Mm. So, you know, I did the best I could do as a mother. And my mother before me did the best that she could with eight children. Her mother before her did the best she could with 12 children. So I think as you grow, you know, into maturity uh, and, and are thoughtful, it's very easy to see uh, where the ruptures happen. It's inevitable. You say in the book that it hurt your feelings when you guys were were estranged. And that just seems like such a straightforward and refreshingly honest statement <laughs> about what happens in relationships. Do you want to talk about that hurt? Yeah, but now let me just say that I really don't like being called a guy. I, I really don't. So oh, I'm, I'm so sorry if I... I, 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 I I'm so sorry if I did. I didn't even realize I did. That's how deeply. No, I know you it is. did. It's the culture, and yeah. that's that's one of the things we have to look at. How, you know, they've masculinized all of us now, so we're we're all just guys. And you can tell someone, you know, I I really would like you just to acknowledge that I'm not a guy, and they'll say, Oh yeah, I know. Oh oh, I'm sorry. And then within ten seconds, it comes up again. So so that's the kind of we leaned into this for a minute, and I was thankful. Uh, Firstly, because it's a reminder of how we can learn from each other if we are willing to be both loving and sometimes uncomfortable. These are not mutually exclusive emotions. And I was also thankful because we got to have this wonderful digression into words, how they shape our minds and affect the way we experience the world. And we ended up talking about how the language of capitalism and marketing have ruined the way we interact with fruit. Anyway, the point is, I was thankful to be reminded to choose my words carefully because they hold power. So back to your question, what was it? Well, so I was asking you about Rebecca, um, and one of the things that that struck me and moved me in the journals is that you mentioned that you felt hurt. You just said, I felt hurt. Um, and I just found 
that to be such a straightforward and honest thing to say. And so I just wonder if you want to talk a little about that hurt. Oh, I was terribly hurt. Are you kidding? To lose your child and to have her, you know, see you in a, in a way that is, to you, distorted. I mean, it, it may not have been that way to her, you know, but she she has a right to how she sees people and me included. Mm-hmm. And that's the bedrock. She has a right. This is her right. I would never, ever take it from her. But of course it hurt. But I have to say, I got over it. You know, I reached a place where I totally realized, you know, this is her perspective. This is her life. You know, I'm pretty okay in my life. uh, And we can share this planet and, and never see each other again. I mean, that's really where you can get to with almost anything. But lucky for us, we had a reunion. <laughs> and we can talk about, you know, some of this, as I said, partly because she now has a child and she's in a culture where children are not well, they're not well loved. Yeah. Children are not, and they're not well supported. And they're constantly being separated by class, by color, you know, by anything you can think of, which is terrible for them. Because they have to live in a world that's going to be a here, be a world after their parents leave, you know. So, so, so everybody should be, it seems to me, attempting to 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 fashion childhoods so that children can get along peacefully and happily with whoever they meet in the world. You also have said that you consider your own mother uh, a goddess. What did you learn from her about motherhood? Well, I learned that she was a goddess and she also had clay feet. I mean, all goddesses (laughs) do. I mean, it's just, it goes with the territory. Nobody's perfect. So just get over it. Uh, For the most part, mothers, in my experience, generally speaking, they're they're pretty much doing the the best they can do. You know, we are gathering our shattered shards and foraging on. I mean, because that also is our tradition. We are knocked down and we get up. You know, you knock us down, we get up uh, until we can't get up. And then, you know, hopefully there's somebody, (laughs) somebody behind us who is going to, you know, step over us and keep going. You know, I'm asking all these questions because it's just there's so much to learn in your openness and vulnerability about your relationships in this collection. There's so much for me to learn about Mm. just how we manage our, our ourselves. And another piece of that is that you write very openly about mental health um, and times of happiness and times of sadness and times when you felt like you couldn't get out of bed. Um, I guess you have done so with intention. You have put these things into the world. Why? What is it you hope? I mean, you could have edited this journal to be just about your work. Well, you know, I was saying to somebody who came to interview me a little while ago, and I said, it's kind of like a coda. You know, it's like a coda. Uh, it seemed a good idea to basically offer to, especially the young, but anybody who is seriously struggling with, you know, a host of issues like everybody's probably doing now, it seemed good as an elder to offer this kind of experience so that people don't have to keep, you know, there's an expression in Zora Neale Hurston's work uh, where she says people are often jumping up and down in the same foot tracks. Mm. And it means you never get anywhere. So often you never get anywhere because the people who've already walked ahead didn't tell you, you know, they didn't tell you that you didn't have to do some of this stuff. I mean, I wish somebody had told me 
for instance, how you get pregnant. I didn't really know. I was never told. And, you know, things like that. I mean, my mother was never told. I mean, she, she ended up with eight children before she started having them, never having a clue and never being permitted to know. And the history of that is that they wanted these plantation owners, they wanted workers. So they didn't want you to tell the women how what was going on about pregnancy and how you got pregnant. They just wanted these workers and your body was supposed to provide the workers for the plantations. So she was caught in that. Her mother was caught in that. Her grandmother was caught in that. Um, And now if she had been able to write a journal, it would have helped me a lot. Really? I mean, along those lines, I think about somebody reading the passages where you're you're thinking out loud about your sexuality. And there's this, there's a there's an entry in 1995 that really touched me where you're sort of wrestling with we get to follow along as you think about labels um and how to apply them. And I I'm gonna do a, an awful set of, of reading Alice Walker to Alice Walker, but um it, it you write, it is important what we call ourselves. The word lesbian is growing on me as I find myself loving, desiring, and admiring so many lesbians. In fact, the spirit of lesbians is often irresistible. I had resisted it because for me it symbolized an island and a separation I do not feel. I've always liked the sound of gay. I've I've thought the expression in the life particularly fine and very black. I hope that full might be seen by others to be a useful, warm-lipped word, too, that while being said with love will draw attention praise, and perhaps the thought of kisses to the speaker's tender, sincere, and generous mouth. And, you know, in 1995, I was wrestling with these labels as well. Um, And I just think about if I had, and and I had never heard anybody wrestle with these labels. I didn't know. I thought I was going crazy, Um, you know, trying to, because I remember trying on in the life. Um, and, And I just, so it made my heart jump. And I just wonder what you think looking back at that passage now. Well, I'm glad I had it there, and I wish I'd had it there for you, Uh, because some of the suffering that we impose on people by keeping silent is just not necessary, really. I mean, you know, we're all going to be leaving here at some point anyway. We might as well make noise. You know, we might as well say what we're thinking. We might as well pass it on to somebody so that it can help them have a happier life. And I really like full. I mean, I think, you know, as I think I go on to talk about the thing about the word full for anybody who feels attracted to and and love. I mean, I was always a loving child. You know, in my community, I told somebody this recently, my mother and father always entered me into the baby contests because we had to raise money to build our church, which like people burn down. But, you know, I would always win. I would always win because I would raise the most money, partly because I was the most loving child. I mean, I didn't see anybody I didn't love. Uh, and that's just my nature. It's my character. So to to box me into some label that I may outgrow next week, why would I do that? I mean, why would I want that to happen? Yeah. You know, I just refuse it. You know, so... Uh, you know, I will be loving of whoever, you know, I'm loving of uh, somebody's coming in to bring firewood. <laughs> <laughs> Introduce us to your dog. We often, so because we do Zoom interviews now, we're never in studio. We meet a lot of people's dogs on our show. Who's your dog? Uh, uh, oh, my dog is wonderful. My dog is just, you know, tiny, but thinks he's as big as a sofa. <laughs> uh, you know, like he's scaring whoever is coming in the door. Hi there. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah. 
You also explore your faith and spirituality. Um, mm-hmm. How would you describe God today? Well, I think first for, for me, I had to get rid of the old white guy. You know, I really did. Charlton Heston, you know, he just <laughs> didn't, didn't do it for me. Uh, and lucky for me, I grew up in the countryside. And so my God was ever present. I mean, it's just nature. I mean, there it is, the whole of this, the whole everything. What is, what was, what will be, all of the natural world is it to me, uh, which means that I'm included. And that's a good thing. In a way, you know, one of the irritating things about the reception of the color purple was that people were so intent on, you know, what the humans were doing to each other and what the men were doing to the women and blah, blah, blah. And all of that is, is wonderful because, you know, you have to suffer to get to, quote, God. But it's, it's, a, it's a book of theology. I mean, I left church at 11 because I could see that the way they had it set up was not right. I mean, it, it excluded the natural world. You never said anything. You never, the preacher never said anything about, my God, look at these trees. You know, I mean, just look at that cloud. Look at that sun. Never, never, never. It was as if all of that didn't exist. And even, you know, at, I don't know, eight or nine or 10, I thought, how could you, you know, separate yourself from this glory? You know, how could you? I mean, do you see what the what the clouds look like when they are coming so strong over here? They look like a wave. I mean, have you noticed? I mean, what is that? Who did that? How did that happen? So these are issues that I'm always interested in, although now I'm just completely content. I feel I live in heaven. I've always lived in heaven and I always will live in heaven. talking with Alice Walker about her new collection, Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, The Journals of Alice Walker. Coming up, we look back on the release of her most famous work, The Color Purple. Stay with us. Have you by chance ever read or seen the movie The Color Purple or the book? Um, And what does that bring up for you as a black person? I feel like The Color Purple as a whole, it talks about the experience for black women and just like understanding it from such a bird's eye view. I think of trauma. Like when you're watching the movie, you just feel like the emotional pain that you have to go through as a black person. Have you by chance ever read or seen The Color Purple? Yes. What does, I guess, the experience of The Color Purple bring up for you? Yeah. I feel like when I think about The Color Purple, I think about the song I'm Here. Because The Color Purple is like, Celie goes through so much trauma. And what's amazing is how she's propped up by so many black women on her story and I just think that that's like a tale as old as time. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined this week by poet, essayist, and novelist Alice Walker. 
As we look back on her life and career, we of course have to linger on the color purple. It's the story of two sisters and their life journey to spiritual freedom. And it includes the violence and sexual abuse they faced along the way from the men in their lives. As a result, both the novel and the later film stirred intense debate within the Black community about how Black men are represented. The Color Purple turns 40 this year. Um, It is a book that meant a great deal to so many people, myself included. Um, And you mentioned the the loud minority of uh, Black men who took issue with the book. Um, and some women, some women too. That's fair. That's fair. I, I I remember processing it, thinking, looking at other Black men and trying to take my cues as a young man of how mm-hmm. I was supposed to feel. I just want to ask you to sort of look back at that time and just what did you, how did you process the negative reactions? It was shocking and it was disappointing. It, it really was. I mean, it just, um, I felt despair. I felt like, if you're going to try to pretend that this is not happening, if this is not true, what will this do to our children? What will it do, especially to our young men, you know, I mean, who, who really needed to, to really sit with it? And, the, and, the, and actually, it would have been more helpful if the older Black men had taken the book. I mean, most didn't read it, of course, but <laughs> if they had taken the book and sat with young Black men. A lot of this stuff that we have seen over the last 40 years would not have happened. When you deny the truth about something, you wound the culture terribly. Mm. Uh, And this was, of course, a grief for me because I was trying to do the opposite. I was feeling like if you can actually show this and you can make people feel this, they will change it. Obviously, they, they will change this. They will have to. They'll be so you know, move that they will say, oh, no, 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 I can see this is not. And, you know, and then also, well, never mind. But anyhow, that's, that's some of it. Well, I, I have to tell you that, um, you know, when the book became a film, I went to the theater with my father, uh, and I just remember this moment, and I don't even remember what part in the story it was, but looking up and um, seeing my father crying, and our barber was sitting nearby and seeing him crying. Um, and it is seared in my brain as a young man, as a moment where I thought, huh, what does it mean to be a black man? Like, do I need to think differently? And I can't be more articulate than that about what what happened for me, but it was a shift um, seeing their emotional reaction. Well, thank you for telling me. You know, that's not what I usually hear. Uh, and it makes me feel very close to those men because we're in this together and we have to basically sit with each other's truths, you know, instead of, you know, trying to wound each other about what we're expressing. It's possible to basically bear witness instead. You know, everybody has, almost everybody, especially in the Black community, has a story that just fits, you know, with this story. Because why wouldn't we? Look where we've been. 400 years of unspeakable horror, you know, totally twisting the personalities of so many of our people. You know, most of them, really. And then when when the artist comes along and tries to, to show some light and bring some healing, then they're, <laughs> they're stoned. I mean, it, people it don't is, want to be healed. 
No, because often that is what you get so used to being wounded, you know, and the victim and not, you know, being taken seriously that that feels comfortable. But I'm saying, you know, that no, 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 no. We look at this. We sit with this. We hash it out with each other. And then we, you know, try to bring the younger people into a healthier situation. How did the color purple change your life? Uh, in the journals, it seems like it's a moment where you are, have to wrestle with the idea of fame. Well, I'm a very private person. I love solitude. As I said before, I'm basically a monk, <laughs> um, but a monk that has traveled everywhere. I mean, I think I've been almost everywhere on the planet except, you know, a few places. And it it gave me, you know, space and, and you know, of course, uh, funds so that I could do the kind of travel that I wanted to do. Um, I just posted something recently about, I started a publishing company and one of the people we published was a young painter and writer in Bali that we met in Bali. In fact, while I was being, you know, virtually stoned here, uh, I managed to escape (laughs) and took myself and my sweetheart and my daughter uh, to Bali for a month. And while there, you know, we we learn a whole other world of things. I mean, just incredible. So, you know, the success of the book and, and especially of the film meant that I could actually do what I needed to do, which was see the planet, to see the other people and to see how innocent they are. You know, their, their leaders are crazy, but they are, you know, and I'm not saying every single person is innocent, but you know what I mean? I mean, that the people, generally speaking, are just people. And most of them are just trying to, you know, have a life and be happy and raise their children and tend to their goats or whatever. Um, and and that, was, that was very good for me. Back in 1979, before The Color Purple, uh, you coined the term womanist in, in mm-hmm. your short story, Coming Apart. What does that term mean to you today? How, how would you define it today? Well, it means the same thing. I mean, it's, and it's not trying to escape feminism. Uh, it, it's, it's basically the belief that you come out of a culture that has its own word for whatever it is you you are. Uh, so, you know, Harriet Tubman would be a womanist rather than a feminist because, for one thing, the feminists of that time wouldn't have been able to sit with her unless she was on the floor. It's complicated and yet it's simple. It's, it's that you have to have your own things hmm. and you do. And, and we have ancestors who made sure, they made sure that we had, in usually in the music, uh, that we had the medicine we needed to, to go, you know, along this treacherous path. For instance, um, it became a blues song, but some of the blues songs, because, you know, the musicians were trying to make money, were actually expressions out of uh, the period of enslavement, which, you know, 400 years long. So one of those expressions is, I'd rather drink muddy water and sleep in a hollow log. Now, that some blues singer, you know, tried to make that into something about, you know, his woman and how he, you know, can't stand being without her, blah, blah, blah. But basically, if you apply it to the period of escaping slaves, what they were saying is that they would not have the abuse from the slave owner. They would run away and they would rather drink muddy water and sleep in a hollow log than stay with somebody who's trying to make them be something they're not. You know? That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. 
the postscript of this collection for your journals is is one of the most fun parts for me. Uh, this is where you kind of get to go back and reinsert the things that you feel like Valerie Boyd edited out. It's the dream of every nonfiction writer to be able to go back and say, well, here's the parts my editor took out that I really like, I want to tell you about. Um, and so I loved that. And in particular, your conversation about dreams. There's one... A dream that you recount in one of the the journal entries, uh, I think it's from 1990, and you describe a dream in which a multiracial cross section of America is sort of is having a party, really, <laughs> um, and and you write that 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 dream makes you feel like you know this version of America is is still possible. At the time, uh, it was a dream in which very much like what actually happened to me up in the hills in Northern California. I ended up with with a bunch of hippies who, you know, some of them actually built my house, uh, but they were musicians and, you know, playing together. I had my shaker ray. They had various and sundry uh, instruments. It was a way of understanding Deeply and and as always, I mean, for a long time, how unhappy our country is. We live in a really seriously unhappy country. It's so sad. It was not meant to be that way. I mean, well, maybe it was meant to be that way, but we didn't have to keep it that way. It should be happy. America should be happy, but it will never be happy with all these factions, you know, fighting each other and you know, the racial thing and the sex thing and the this and the that. So, yes, I put that in because I could feel that it was a dream. It was given to me as a dream uh, with all of us playing our musical instruments together and being really mellow. This was given to me to pass on, to remind us that we are not a happy country, but we can be. We can be a happy country. You say dreams are the source of first knowledge in that postscript. What do you mean by that? Why are dreams so important to you? Well, I, I think I mean what the Aboriginal people of Australia have always meant when they talk about the dream time. I believe that the dream time for them was what I somehow have a corner of in this life. The dream time was when people received in by dreaming the information that nobody told them. You know, they dreamed it. That's how they knew. And so I feel that way when I when I have a dream like like the one we were talking about that it has a meaning. I mean, it has a meaning in its directive to us to consider the unhappiness of America and, and own it. You know, don't start fighting about, oh, yeah, we're happy. <laughs> uh, I mean, what people mean when they say that basically is that they're happy because they have everything they want, you know, and more. But anyway, um, but, but to think about how to be a happy country. And you cannot be a happy country if you're always fighting each other. It's just impossible. Well, Alice Walker, I thank you so much for this conversation and um, for sharing uh, a life's lessons uh, and struggles with us on the page. Well, I think you've been great. And thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alice Walker's new collection is called Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, The Journals of Alice Walker. It offers a peek into her private diary spanning four decades, from the 1960s through the turn of the century. A note before we go. It's Memorial Day weekend, 
And we sadly have an awful lot of people to remember. People whose lives have been needlessly cut short in this country. More than a million lives lost to COVID and the political failures that have accompanied this pandemic. More than 45,000 lives a year, at most recent count, lost to our national fetish for guns. And this weekend, a lot of us are thinking about George Floyd, who was murdered on Memorial Day in 2020, and the numbingly large number of Black lives lost to similar police violence. All of which is to say, yes, hold your people close in joy this weekend as we celebrate the coming days of summer. But also, let us remember these needless deaths, and let us meditate on how we can prevent more like them. The United States of Anxiety is produced by Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Kusha Navadar, Rahima Nasa, and Jared Paul. And a special thanks this week to Bill Moss, who mixed this episode. Bill, it's so nice to have you back. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Atterboro Brass Band. You can send us your thoughts on any and everything you hear on the show by emailing us at anxiety at WNYC.org. We particularly love to get voice memos there. So just record one on your smartphone and email it along. Send it to anxiety at WNYC.org. And you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find the whole archive at WNYC.org slash anxiety. There's a tab there that says collections. If you're looking for a good place to start, that's got a few curated episode lists for you. And otherwise, I'll see you here next Sunday. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us and happy Memorial Day weekend.